As we continue in the early pages of the book of Mark, we see Jesus beginning his early Galilean ministry and calling his first disciples. Um, talk about getting in on the ground level, so to speak. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But if you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark. As he's entering this early period of ministry, something interesting happens here. John proclaimed in verse 7 that there was one more powerful than he, whose sandal straps he was unworthy to loosen, who was soon coming behind him. Nevertheless, until Jesus would arrive, John faithfully continued with his ministry. And we see that in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, where he says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. And of course, this is prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, he says he's a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. And John came baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John faithfully proclaimed the word until Jesus would really take center focus here. But as we get into verses uh, 14 and following for this morning's text, something interesting happens here that really does shift the focus from John to Jesus. John was arrested. Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good, repent and believe the good news. And as he passed alongside the sea, for they were fishermen, follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and, the brother, and his brother John uh, in a boat, putting up in a boat with the hired men and followed him. Let's just stand for the opportunity to look at your word this morning. I ask God that you would speak to our hearts, make it uh, come alive to us. And Lord, that we might not just hear the story of pray. Amen. Well, the first thing we see here is John's arrest. He says, being faithful and proclaiming that there is one coming behind him who is preferred. And it's kind of amazing what the Pharisees were saying about it. Well, you know, the Pharisees were kind of spreading the word that, you know, here Jesus is baptizing over here, but John has got all these people over here. You know, it wasn't a matter of Jesus baptizing the people. In fact, it wasn't Jesus who was doing it. It was his disciples. But you notice how there's always this faction that says, well, there's this guy, and then there's this guy, and I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos. With John out of the picture, Jesus takes center stage. I don't know if that's by design and what took place with Mark. I don't believe it was. But the world would like to say that there's got to be an interesting reason behind it. But what we read here is that John is arrested. And we read why, we read why he was arrested in Mark chapter 6. So if you would leave your finger there in Mark chapter 1 and turn over to Mark chapter 6 just for a moment. We find out what happens here and why he's arrested. Beginning with verse 14, if you would follow along, it says, King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why uh, miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets from long ago. And when Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. 
So really, he's still quite upset that this John had married into his family. And he's not, he's not real happy. Verse 18 says, John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a right flex, and yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his alley. When Herodias, his own daughter, came in and danced, she pleased Herod, and he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to the moment of dancing. He was so excited, so in the flesh, that whatever you want, flesh this banquet must have been, how fleshly it was. Did I ask for John the Baptist's head? She said. At once, she on a platter. Immediately, although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths, and sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring bring him John's head. So he went and be. Then the girl gave it to her mother. And when John's disciples heard about it, the fleshliness that was taking place, you know, the girl comes in and dances, and for whatever reason, her mother holding a grudge, he is decapitated. What's right, really, is he's preaching the gospel. It perplexed Herod to listen to him preach. Focus of the gospel onto Jesus as John is no longer in the church begins. So we see right here in verse 14, after John was a proclamation was the good news of God. It's a powerful message in a day of oppression. So many people thought he was going to come to do what? Set up his earthly kingdom. I mean, this is going to get better, but it was not a political move. It was a spiritual move. The gospel was going to be for a moment. Can you imagine? Let's back up 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, stock in Ford from way back early 1900s. Can you imagine having stock about what it would be worth today? Can you imagine way back when Coca-Cola got its in Coca-Cola or Pepsi or something else? Can you imagine what it would be worth today? When it's just starting to get known. Can you imagine being a stock... This is the ground level of option. Far more superior than any product ever been made for eternity. Jesus' proclamation was this. Let me ask you a question this morning, folks. Has anything changed? That Jesus Christ still has the answers? Yes, we do. Chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it says this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, and not like the scribes. You see, Jesus wasn't just a meek and mild. He went out with authority. And he shared it with authority. Because we need to understand that. So Jesus' message really was a fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. So the first thing we see is that when the time is for proclaiming the gospel, what Isaiah proclaimed would happen is now happening. It's now taking place to the people. And to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. This is the very message that, you know, he said not only is the fullness of time come, he says the kingdom of God is near. Urgent message. The time of the kingdom of God is near. You know, the gospel. There's two truths that we may, must never forget. God more faithfully later. We may not have later. Proverbs 27, verse 1, we don't have the guarantee of later. Amen? And because of that, we have, But not only do we not know when we'll die, we don't know when Jesus may come. Live a happy, long life, and all of a sudden one day, at God's appointed time, we'll just die. But you may not. Jesus may come before that. And won't we all say amen to that? As we're building and building and building as if we're never going to go. What is 
I think still we must proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And the message was not only one of urgency, it is to turn from sin and turn to God for forgiveness. And to walk in the life, I'm just kind of doing my thing, and all of a sudden I'm confronted with the truth that something in my life is, is, is partly disobedient. When I'm confronted with that truth, what do I do with it? Turn my back on that action, that activity, that thing that is in my life, and go a different direction. So walking in fellowship with Him. And this is the message that he's beginning to proclaim. 20 says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision instead, and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do the works. Not just to say, well, you know what? This is not right in my life. I should probably change that. No, it's turn the way of repentance. Doing the works that he's called us to do. That's not quite right. But what do we do with that? What are we doing in our life is not pleasing to God. It's not just enough to acknowledge it. But sorry is not, being sorry is not being repentant. Being repentant says, I'm not going to do it to God. True repentance. See, anytime that I'm convicted by a sin in my life, I have to come to the place that I realize it. I can't excuse it away. I have to acknowledge that this thing is here and I got sorry. And they go right back to it. Repentance requires, who of us likes to admit that we're wrong? Would you raise your hand? Right? I don't see any hands. Most of us men, we've never done anything wrong. We need a dose of humility. Uh, we got stuff coming from the peanut gallery. When we're wrong, we're wrong. When we're guilty, we're guilty. Can't blame it. Acknowledge it. And humility, and in humility, but I'm willing to lay aside my way, my thoughts, my actions, my desires. Let me ask you a question. Does anyone have an authority at the place of business where you work? They're always right, right? They never make mistakes. Is that the truth? No. But see, what I've learned over the years is that it doesn't matter. My job is to surrender to the authority. They're the engineers that, excuse me if you're an engineer, they're the engineers that came up with all the rules, but they don't work with the hands-on, right? We don't like to surrender. But for true repentance to take place, there has to be a surrender that says, really, change their mind to experience true repentance. In fact, Acts chapter 3, verse 19 says, Therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. In other words, there's a 14. It says, besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for the night is nearly over and the day is near, so let us discard the deeds of darkness, or drunkenness, not sexual impurity or promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but there has to be a desire to change, to turn our back on the things of the world, if true repentance has even taken place. I mean, I think I'm sorry. I think, I've, I, I think I'm not just you know sorry that I got caught. I'm not just sorry that I... I think Psalm 51 gives us a good example of where true repentance has taken place. I think there's an acknowledgement of sin. Look at Psalm chapter 51, if you would, just for a moment. Let me read some of these verses here. Faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Why? Well, this next verse. Verse 2, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sins. Man, I, I have to come to the conclusion. I, I got no one to blame but me. It's right there in front of me. this evil in your sight, so you are right when you pass sentence. You're blameless when you... 
I'm not going to blame anyone else for what I've done. I deserve it. Man, this goes way back. I was sinful when my, father, my mother conceived me. Surify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the of my sin on me. It's as if I couldn't move. It's as if my bones were crushed. It's as if I could face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. Why? Because he's realizing he's turn your back from my sin. And then he says, verse 10, You want to know a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He longs to be banished me from your presence or take away your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. So he says, don't just, just forgive me. Don't just like put me right back in your presence without consequence. He goes, I want to restore fellowship with you. It's not just enough to acknowledge that I've done something wrong. God, I want to be a, a restored fellowship with you once again. Then I will teach the rebellious, rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. What's he saying here? When I have come through this, I'm going to help others come through this. I want others to see the joy of having a restored fellowship with God the Father. I'll teach them. I'll spend time with them. And he goes on, save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I'd give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit, and you will not despise a broken and a humbled heart, God. There's the humility. He says, God, you'll not despise that. What's he saying here? I'm repenting, Lord. And I want my fellowship with you restored. I want to feel the freedom of walking and worshiping you once again. Raise your hand, but how many of you, every time you did something you wronged with your wife, you went out and gave her no hands here. He's saying, you, you can't buy away your forgiveness here. I want more sacrifices. He said, I want a broken heart. Don't tell me you're sorry. Show me. That's when repentance takes place. Because I'm not just behind me, and now I'm going to go this way. And God, I've got no one sorry, I did it. Now God, would you change my heart, change my mind? When those things begin to happen, when there is an acknowledgement of the sin, and restored joy and fellowship, repentance has taken place. Verse 15, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come. Repent, who is already walking right. The circumstances around him are that think, believe. To believe is to put your faith and trust solely in him alone than in anyone else. For there's no other name given under heaven, given among men, whereby we put our faith and trust in. Our faith and trust is not to be in things, it's not to be in money, it's not to be in trust, it's in Jesus Christ alone. In John chapter 14, by me, one way, despite what men may say, there's one way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So Jesus Christ is the one and only way. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse lest any man should boast. You see, when he calls people to repentance, he was the only perfect sacrifice. He's the only one that could uh, go to the altar. So he's setting the stage here. John is out of the picture. He's a wreck. And he's proclaiming the gospel of the good news of God. The time is fulfilled. There's going to be a day that he's not going to be there. So there's this sense of urgency where he's calling people to repent. Jesus calls out to men to follow. To follow is still present today. 
It's still there. So alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James and Sam, and they left their fa father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. As the first disciples are called. First of all, this is number one. Practical application here. It's not in the text, but I'm just going to go on a limb and say it's there. God uses people that aren't sitting around on their behinds waiting for the next big thing to happen. And we kind of have this idea when we're growing up and we're in our young families, when our kids are a little bit older. When, when, when I, we retire from my job, I'll serve. No, serve where you're at. Opportunity. You're going to miss how God may use you. Some people are just busy, and we can justify it, rationalize it, excuse it. Yeah, I know you're busy. Don't worry about it. No big deal. I don't see Jesus saying that. Dead. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, my works don't save me. Do his work. If we truly know Jesus, we'll want to serve him in some way, right? And if I truly know him, I'll want to serve him. I'll want to have a work for him. Push anything. So God uses faithful people, and he sees Simon, Andrew, in their nets, and preparing their nets, and getting ready to keep the work going. The fact that you need hired hands. But the first observation here is this. Number two, Jesus calls the fishermen to follow him. You see, all of us are following something, our own whims, our own desires, our own interests, our own hobbies, and... We're all following something or someone. But to follow him. In fact, there's quite a common occurrence in the New Testament. I'll not read all the passages to me. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, the disciples took up their crosses and one, the rich young ruler, was invited to what? Follow Jesus. Jesus even told Peter to follow me. See, Jesus was all keep your finger there in Mark chapter 1 and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you is calling all of us to follow in his steps. So that means we have to go where they're going and do what they do, right? It's pretty simple. People to follow him. John wasn't saying to me he's preferred before me. Follow him. The Apostle Paul says, saying, follow the man. I'm just an image of he, who he is. Don't look at me, look at Jesus Christ. Turn over to Luke. It's the next book over. Luke. Um, when the book Radical came out from David, it was really put out there that I have to sacrifice. I gave several copies of that book away. I probably gave a dozen copies of that book to different people and said, read this. But I had someone in church say, God would never ask... Look at what I'm talking about. Luke chapter 14, beginning verse 25. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brother, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bitch of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying this man has started to build and wasn't able to finish. My family? Is that what he's saying? God is calling me to hate my father and mother. No. That's not what he's saying. And that's what I explained to this gentleman. It's not the idea that for me I'd be greater than your love for anything else. In comparison, it... I wonder, do we have that kind of love? If you're called to make a commitment and it doesn't cost you anything, hold a whole lot of weight and it's probably not worth anything. 
Any commitment worth making will re- I know there's been a lot of... And here's the statement, and don't misconstrue what I'm going to say. Stop asking Jesus into your heart. Don't misconstrue. See, we have watered down salvation to just saying a prayer. So if you just say the prayer, you got your fire insurance, you're going to heaven, you don't have to worry about hell any longer. Understand the commitment involved. Understand the sacrifice and who claims to know Jesus. You see, I can't just say a prayer and just go on. Is an active thing. True faith produces... If I say that I love my wife, but the actions don't follow... Pretty pathetic, right? That it's not just word; it's action. And expects nothing in return. I choose to do this in light of what He's done for me. So when I say a prayer and I truly put my faith and trust in Christ, it is a commitment to follow. And that's why He says in Mark, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength." And the second commandment is greater, is, is like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. See, I can't just say a prayer and just keep on doing whatever it is I always do. My life must follow it with its actions. But he says something else here in the text. There is a commitment required, there's a sacrifice required So he sees the fishermen busy at work. God uses busy people. He uses people who are willing to work. Number two, Jesus calls the fishermen to follow as he's calling many to follow. Number three, Jesus tells them that he'll make them fish for people. He says that right away here in verse 17. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. What I want to say about this is just real simple. If this was what Jesus wanted the disciples to understand that the commitment and the sacrifice would cause them to share their faith and to fish for people. If that was what was important to Jesus, what ought to be important to us as well? Fishing for people. You see, if we're not careful, life can be just about, well, I'm going to heaven when I die. Woo! So excited about that. Right? Would any of us not agree that that is the greatest gift that we've ever been given? Anybody not agree with that? It's phenomenally, incredibly awesome. But so is the thought that we wouldn't share that with someone else. Fair enough? It's not just enough to say, well, I I spun the dial open, I put the put Jesus in the safe, I slung the door shut, spin the dial, and nobody can take away my salvation. Nobody can take it from me. I'm in the Father's hand. But neither does anyone else have access to it. It should be something that we share with others. He says, follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. Why? Because we got the greatest message ever given to mankind. Right? Last, last one, we'll close. The fourth observation we see here at ground level is that immediately the fishermen followed Jesus. Immediately the fishermen followed Jesus. In fact, he says this, verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
And then going on a little bit further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and about putting their nets in order. And immediately he called them, and they left their, left their father Zebedee. Two instances where immediately they responded and followed Jesus. You see, we said that Jesus' message early in verses 14 and 15, that John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, the time is fulfilled. The idea behind that phrase, the time is fulfilled, is that there was an urgency about the message. You see, in urgency, Jesus calls out to these four new disciples. And immediately, they respond to the urgency of the cry. And I'm afraid that in our day and age and in our culture that we live in, we've lost sense of the urgency. And immediately doesn't mean immediately anymore. It means when it's convenient. It means when we have time. It means if we have the right skill set and you know I'm not too shy or I'm not too introvert, whatever. We've kind of changed the terminology, the definition, so to speak. Immediately doesn't mean immediately anymore. Urgency has been lost. Would you agree? It's pretty quiet in here. We've lost the sense of urgency. Folks, if we get nothing more out of the passage this morning, let's get back to the sense of urgency that Jesus proclaimed the gospel of God with. This urgency that he went from town to town with. This urgency by which he called disciples to is the same urgency that we must live with. Why? Because we don't know how much longer we have. We don't know when we're going to die. And even if we did know, none of us would be excited about it. The question has been asked over the years, numerous times by numerous people. But the simple question is this. What would you do differently if you knew you had 24 hours to live? What would you do differently? Would you go out and just say, well, i got to live it up one more time because you know, I'm, I'm eating, drinking, tomorrow I die. And live it up. Or would you try to put your house in order if it's not? And by that I mean you've got some family members that don't know Jesus. You may have a neighbor or two or three or four that don't know Jesus. You have some folks around you at work, relatives, friends, that don't know Jesus and you've got to get the message out because you only have 24 hours to do it. What would you do differently? Maybe you wouldn't touch it. I heard someone answer that question that one time. They said, I just go and pray and just say, thank you, Lord, for all the things you've done for me all my life. Really? Sounds so spiritual. What would you do different? What should we do different? Because we don't know if we have 24 hours left. And let me just say, as I say often, two hands and a foot. I need to contemplate this in my own life. I think all of us do. Because we can become so complacent just doing whatever it is that we do day in and day out. Can I just say, don't wait. Because not only do we not know when we're going to die, we don't know when Christ is going to come. I want to be found ready and waiting. Amen? I hope that's your desire, your prayer. So many things here in this text. Jesus is calling us to follow, and the follow requires commitment. 
don't know about you, but I'm, I'm convicted. I'm challenged by these things. You read through them, you read through these passages, and there's so much there. And I'm convicted by the fact that I feel like there's days I just am selfish. Doing whatever it is I want to do. And I think Johnny Hunt once more said, uh, made a statement at one of the seminars I went to with him. He says, so many of us at church are busy doing church work rather than doing the work of the church. Big difference. Some of us are busy doing church work rather than the work of the church. If you need an explanation of that, I'll explain it to you later. But see, we can get busy doing a lot of stuff. And it's just stuff. Good stuff. Helpful stuff. Meaningful stuff. But it's just stuff. Where does following Jesus and the commitment that's required fit into the picture of doing stuff? Let's, busy about, let's be busy doing the work of the church. Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the same urgency and commitment and sacrifice that Jesus did. What a beautiful example. Let's follow that. Amen.